The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret stories and little-known behind-the-scenes details about your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your foreman of facts. My name is Jordan Runtog. <laughs> and I'm Alex Heigl. And today, we are going to talk about truly one of my all-time favorite movies as a kid, The Never-Ending Story. And you know how little kids get into this routine where they watch movies over and over again? That's how I was with this movie. There were showings of this movie in my That's house adorable. practically daily. Oh, yeah. I couldn't get enough of this movie. It was just always on. It has to be part of my genetic code at this point. Like, whenever I see storm clouds off in the distance, I think of the dreaded nothing. Whenever I see a beautiful <laughs> white horse, I think of Artax and his demise in the Swamp mm-hmm. of Sadness. Atreyu, still the coolest kid who's ever lived as far as I'm concerned. And it was really only after revisiting this movie for this episode that I realized... The Burning Story is kind of terrifying. Yeah, it's yeah. dark. <laughs> um, so we're really hitting our personal kinder trauma trifecta uh, this summer. We've got... I know. We 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 got to save some of these for season two, man. We're going to run out of all this... Yeah. Fern Gully, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and now Never Ending Story. Sorry to all of our listeners for all of the repressed nightmares that these episodes may have dredged up. Uh, don't worry. We're not sleeping either. <laughs> this is one of those movies that I assume that everybody of our age group had a personal connection with, like, you know, The Lion King or Beauty and the Beast or something. But after talking to you, I'm starting to get the sense that that's not the case. What's your relationship like with this movie? Non-existent. Really? I, yeah, I mean, as far as fantasy stuff growing up, it was Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. It's all um, oh, we should totally do that, too. Yeah. I think the bigger thing for me was Star Wars. I mean, like, I was uh, a Star Wars kid. I didn't know but, that. But, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In many ways, I pin the death of my childhood on two late 90s properties, which is Batman and Robin, as we've talked about many times, and the prequels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but no, I get back to Never Any Story. I think I have literally seen this movie once. Wow. I think we watched it in like 
teacher has a hangover, we're going to watch movies day in like middle school. And then I just never revisited it. In fact, I remember being exposed to that screamo band or metalcore or whatever, the band Atreyu more than the actual child (laughs) character Atreyu. Which is hilarious. Wow. Do you have um, any images but, burned into your, into your oh, brain? Oh, the horse yeah. dying, for sure. I mean, I think I actually, I confused the rock dude from this movie with the one from Return to Oz. Because oh. um, I saw Return to Oz way too early. Yeah. And I remember, like, being, like, I have the wheelie guys, for me, is like which is common. Like, everyone's like, what the f- are those things doing in a child's movie but i think i saw that at like six or seven and was like oh goodness well i guess we'll see over the course of this episode what horrifying <laughs> memories shake loose from your subconscious yeah. um it's time to dive in to our never-ending episode you'll learn the many ways that the kid who played atreyu nearly died on the set the true fate of that horse that sank in the quicksand the insane lengths they went to build falcor the luck dragon out of airplane pieces and steven <laughs> spielberg's secret role in helping finish the movie so here is everything you never knew about the never ending story Given the popularity of the never-ending story, the movie, it may surprise fans to learn that the film was actually based on a 1979 children's novel by German author Michael Ende, who hated the film adaptation so much that he sued the studio. But let me backtrack a bit. The book was phenomenally popular in Germany and around the world, but especially in Germany, where it stayed at the top of the literary charts for three years and sold more than a million copies before being translated into 27 different languages, including English. Um, It sold quite well in the States as well. I think it sold something like 100,000 copies. The utopian themes of the NeverEnding Story book were embraced by anti-nuclear activists at the dawn of the 80s. And I've seen reports that people... People would line up around the block and camp out in sleeping bags in order to hear the author, Michael Ende, speak. So this was a big deal, and doing a film adaptation of this book was basically like making Harry Potter or something in the early 80s. This was a big deal. Um, Michael Ende seems to, I think that's how you say his name, he seems to have something of a persecution complex. He said that the critical <laughs> reaction to the book, quote, ranged from amazement to black rage. You could enter the literary salon from prison from the insane asylum, from a whorehouse, everywhere but from the children's room. So, yeah, mixed reaction. That's a pretty incredible quote, though, to be fair. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> I mean, I guess it, yeah, it probably is. I mean, I'm not, I don't know any children's authors personally, but it must be hard to get that sense of respect, um, mm. you know, that is afforded to people who have, like, a gritty personal story that was told from, you know, prison diaries or, you know, yeah. something, some kind of ins- harrowing personal memoir or some... Well, speaking of harrowing personal memoirs... Oh, yeah, you have a lot to say about this author. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, his father was a surrealist painter in Germany. Uh, his work was, like many others, shut down by the Nazis And Michael was 12 years old when the first air raid took place above Munich, about which he has a delightful quote that I was unable to verify, but don't want to know the truth about, frankly, because it can't be worse than you assume. Quote, I remember singing and careening through the blaze like a drunkard. I was in the grip of a kind of euphoria. I still don't truly understand it, but I was almost tempted to cast myself into the fire like a moth into the light. 
<laughs> Which imagine I can't do it. I didn't have I didn't bring this prepared, but imagine that in Werner Herzog's voice. I was gonna say Doctor Evil, but yeah, that works too. Close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, so so much about Neverending Story, like the Swamp of Sadness and the Nothing, yeah. just this impending aerial force coming yep. sweeping over. The, okay, this is all starting to make sense now. Wow. He was visiting his uncle during the 1943 Hamburg bombing, which was one of those horrifying carpet bombing situations like Dresden. They blew up, I think, a petroleum. There's a petroleum refinery or something like that. And then the whole town went up and it was like a horrifying firestorm. 37,000 people died. Oh, my Um, God. Yeah. A year later, his father's studio burns up and he loses like the bulk of his work. And then in 1945, the kid is drafted into the, the Volkstrom which was like the, quote, volunteer German army. Um, A bunch of his classmates went to war and died. Three of them. I guess that's not a bunch. That's enough enough. children dying. And then he tore up his draft papers and joined a Bavarian resistance movement. Cool. Yeah. So uh, quite the CV, even before he created one of the most immortal children's books of all time. Wow. I guess what I say I'm saying is he's earned that persecution complex okay, because fair. he was literally persecuted. I take that back. Thank you for <laughs> for putting me straight on that. Well, back to slightly happier occasions <laughs> in this man's life. He sold the film rights to the Neverending Story for fifty thousand dollars, which I find to be a pretty low figure considering his popularity, and perhaps this is what helps sow the seeds of resentment in years to come. Uh, According to an interview that he gave with the German newspaper Der Spiegel, his first choice for director was Akira Kurosawa, (laughs) the legendary Japanese director. His second choice was Polish director Andrzej Wajda. Is that how you say that? I have no idea. I googled that. I mean, Akira Kurosawa would be incredible. Um, (laughs) But I googled this guy, Andrzej, and... uh, he won like a an honorary Oscar. He won the right. Palme d'Or. Yeah. It's just funny. It's like when Morrissey was putting out his autobiography and he's like, it has to come out on Penguin Classics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, way to pick two of the most iconic, uh, apparently, 20th century directors as the guys to do your children's book. Yeah, I can't tell if this speaks to like the high popular regard for this book or for the author's arrogance. Maybe a little bit of both. Again, he really wants that cred. He really wants that cred. He's not getting it from coming in through the kid's door. He's sitting at the kid's table. So that's interesting. But ultimately, they got Wolfgang Peterson as director and more on him Director soon. Wolfgang Peterson. Yes, director <laughs> Wolfgang Peterson. Fans of the podcast will know him from our Air Force One episode. So more on him soon, but together Wolfgang Peterson and author Michael Ende collaborate on the script. And the author later said, I worked as an advisor because I wanted a beautiful movie. I trusted them. Then things went south in a pretty big way. Michael Ende claimed that Peterson later secretly rewrote the screenplay, making major changes that offended him deeply. And he's quoted as saying, I saw the final script five days before the movie's premiere, and I was horrified. They had changed the whole sense of the story. And he objected to numerous additions to the movie that were not found in the original book, specifically the final scene of the movie. You'll remember that the movie opens with the nerdy Bastion, the kid Bastion, getting tormented by bullies, and he hides out in the school's attic and reads this enchanted book. And the adventures within the book kind of form the bulk of the movie. Uh, At the end of the movie, after Bastion has developed confidence through what he's read in this book, 
He flies into the real world on the back of Falcor, the luck dragon, and he gets revenge on his bullies. So suddenly this fantasy world enters the real world. Author Michael Ende violently objected to that scene, <laughs> saying that it undercut the meaning of his story. And he angrily told producers, you're trying to do a Disney movie, to which they basically <laughs> said, yeah, <laughs> yep, sure are. Exactly. That's what we're trying to do um, that's our bit <laughs> yeah he also objected to this is my favorite part the twin laser shooting oracle statues which he felt mm-hmm. were a little too um voluptuous he later said the sphinxes are one of the biggest embarrassments of the film they are full bosom <laughs> strippers who sit there in the desert sounds like a russ myers movie <laughs> uh so the author was pissed so pissed that he attempted to halt the movie by filing a lawsuit against the movie's German production company for breach of contract. When the suit was dismissed, he tried to get them to change the name of the movie, which also failed. Ultimately, he organized a press conference to coincide with the release of the film, which he referred to as, quote, the revolting movie. And he added, (laughs) the makers of the film simply did not understand the book at all. They just wanted to make money. And he was so ashamed of the final product that he refused to have his name in the opening credits of the film, instead opting for just a small mention in the closing credits. But yeah, we'll talk about director Wolfgang Peterson's sort of take on all this. He basically says uh, most authors aren't happy with movie adaptations of their books because it's really hard to compress everything that happens in a novel into 90 minutes, two hours of screen time. Not to mention this book is so fantastical. There are so many elements that just technologically speaking, couldn't be put on the screen anyway. So this guy, you know, didn't take kindly to uh, having his words and stories altered. And um, it kind of needed to be for the, for to appear on screen. There's a famous story about uh, Vladimir Nabokov writing the screenplay for Lolita, the original screenplay. And it was like, I think it was something, it was like over 300 pages. And (laughs) and they were like, we can't make this. We can't lift this. (laughs) That's the famous quote. That's great. Well, I mean, using that as a springboard, uh, we might as well do a lightning round of other famous authors who were displeased with the cinematic adaptations of their work, starting with probably one of the most famous one, Stephen King versus Stanley Kubrick. Uh, Stephen King was a big fan of Kubrick, but he disliked that adaptation of The Shining, calling it a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine inside. (laughs) Uh, coming from the author of Christine, that's, uh, that's harsh. <laughs> that's harsh words. Um, and he especially did not like Shelley Duvall. Hi, I'm Shelley Duvall. Uh, <laughs> Shelley Duvall's performance, which I don't think is fair. This is a horrible quote. He told the BBC, she's basically just there to scream and be stupid. And that's not the woman that I wrote about. That performance is a triumph. How f***ing dare you? <laughs> King may have been unduly influenced by uh, Kubrick's weird habits during filming, one of which I just remembered uh, that he called Stephen King like late at night, asking him stuff like, do you believe in God? (laughs) Wow. Um, Anyway, moving on. Uh, Another Kubrick. Boy, buddy. And Kubrick did uh, Nabokov's Lolita, too. And I don't think Nabokov was particularly happy with his adaptation of that either. So Kubrick's Um, striking out right and left. Yes, uh, Anthony Burgess, author of Clockwork Orange, was so upset by Kubrick's film adaptation that he said he wished he had never written the novel in the first place, saying the film made it easy for readers of the book to misunderstand what it was about, and the misunderstanding will pursue me till I die. I should not have written the book because of this danger of misinterpretation. 
famously misinterpreted by John Bottom, who is a big fan of all the droogs <laughs> and dressed like them on stage. Bowie did too, but I think he I think he understood that dressing like them and acting like them were two very different things. Yeah, distinction lost on Bonham. Kubrick also pissed off Wendy Carlos, man. Hard guy to work with. Hard guy to work oh, with. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah, that's my tremendous... That's my um, ice-cold film take for this <laughs> episode. Your, your galaxy brain film take for this Stanley episode. Stanley Kubrick, hard to work yeah. with. Uh, moving right along, Roald Dahl felt the movie version of Charlie and Chocolate Factory was, quote, crummy. And thought Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka was pretentious and bouncy? Hmm. That's not really a That quote. sounds like a slur. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a, yeah, I don't, you know. It's racial somehow. Oh, uh, no, just like, it sounds like a homophobic slur. Oh, that tracks. Uh, and felt director Mel Stewart had no talent or flair. No other Wonka movies were made while he lived. <laughs> you rolled doll. How dare you say that about um, Gene Wilder's performance? Uh, he is creepy okay. in that, though. Let's be real. That's why he's so good. Yeah. Uh, I watch yeah. the office scene like daily. The, the Why? Oh, that's so upsetting. You to get me. nothing. And then just, and then later, like just the tenderness in his voice deed. when he so shines a good deed in oh. a weary world. When the tenderness in his voice when he just goes, Charlie. It's so good, oh, man. I, oh, it, it's it's too upsetting. Adult. It's too upsetting to me. It's like that anger. Oh, I, I, I watched that movie. That movie, we should. Nah, I don't know. No, I we should apps. Oh, that's a I huge watched that movie one for me. A lot. It, me too. Oh yeah, because you're too. candy door. All right, putting a pin in that. We'll get back to it. P. L. Travers famously hated the Disney version of Mary Poppins so much that she wept at the premiere and forbade the company from remaking any of her other books. And, and you folks, you may remember, uh, Jesus, ten years ago at this point, uh, oh. Saving Mr. Banks. And Disney began to work on a theatrical production of Mary Poppins in the 90s, and she relented. She gave them consent on the condition that no one associated with the film version be involved. Savage. Uh, Forrest Gump, Winston Groom, the man who wrote that book, was so pissed that he got screwed out of uh, points on the back end from that movie adaptation. Or mentions in the Oscar acceptance speeches, which... I think it won six. Mentioned in none, I believe. Don't get greedy, Winston. He wrote a sequel book, uh, which I have no, I know nothing about. What is it called? A, a Good Day to Forrest Gump? <laughs> Forrest Gump Harder. Forrest Gump. <laughs> with the vengeance. Yeah. Forrest Gump with the vengeance actually rules. Forrest Gump back in the habit. <laughs> uh, yeah, it opens with the line, don't ever let nobody make a movie of your life story. Whether they get it right or wrong, it don't matter. Uh, and all right, Jesus, cool. No, I don't want to know this about Cool Hand Luke. Don Pierce wrote the book Cool Hand Luke, inspired by the two years he spent on a prison road gang. Uh, he was supposed to write the screenplay, but the studio gave it to a more experienced writer for polishing. They did a lousy job, and I disliked it intensely. He told the Telegraph, "Boy." Authors, man, they do not mince words. Uh, he thought the famous line, what we have here is a failure to communicate, which I believe is firmly installed on the AFI top quotes 100 list. A stupid f***ing line. That's what he called it. You got to do not- it. You got to do it like uh, like like the foreman. Oh, uh, no. No, I can't do it. What can't we have that here is failure, failure to communicate. To communicate. See, some man... You just can't reach. So you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. 
Well, he gets it. And I don't like it any more than you, man. <laughs> uh, you know how I know that whole thing is from the Guns N' Roses song, Civil War. Oh. It starts with that. <laughs> more on them later. Yeah, exactly. Um, he even disliked Paul Newman because... The guy was so cute looking. He was too scrawny. He wouldn't have lasted five minutes on the road. Pierce got a small part in the movie and talked to Newman on the set and saying he even asked me to dinner then canceled when his PR people realized he didn't need to be seen eating with an ex-con. He continued, I didn't like the guy. I didn't like that whole Hollywood crowd. I was never made welcome. And at one point he got so upset with the film that he actually punched someone on the set, which... um. I don't know, dude. There's some tough dudes on the on that set. But I don't think you, you oh, George, Kennedy? George Kennedy. He'll murder you. Yep. Um, Ken Kesey, famously pissed at One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, that book takes place from the perspective of Chief. It's all narrated from his point of view. And obviously in the movie, he is mute and not a point of view character. Uh, Brett Easton Ellis, American Psycho, shouldn't have been made. I disagree would agree with him well i mean i would agree with him only in as much that brett easton ellis should not be famous um because <laughs> he's a piece of <laughs> not that great of a writer uh eb white thought the charlotte's web cartoon from 1973 was a travesty truman capote hated breakfast at tiffany's spent the rest of his life trashing it because he felt that marilyn monroe was the only woman fit to play holly go lightly and <laughs> weird place to end up here um the author of I Know What You Did Last Summer. We get through all these iconic works of literature to land on I Know What You Did Last Summer. Lois Duncan. Oh, I shouldn't have made fun of her. That's sad. She based her novel partially on the murder of her 18-year-old daughter and was deeply offended by the slasherization of the movie and its sequel. I think there's like five of them now. This poor woman is getting checks based on the murder of her daughter. Oh, my God. Oh, buddy. <laughs> Alan Moore, who uh, has written some of the most important capital I graphic novels of the 20th century, Watchmen, uh, was his with a guy named Dave Gibbons. And they explicitly worked on that with the aim of showing what comics could do that other mediums couldn't between all the visual information contained in the frame and the thought bubbles and like Actually, I don't think there's thought bubbles in that. Anyway, he made he was like, I want to show what comics can do as a medium that no other medium can do. So the fact that it was adapted into a movie is hilarious to me. He has disowned every adaptation. Uh, in V for Vendetta, he called a Bush-era parable by people too timid to set a political satire in their own country. Uh, fair. And um, that f***ing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie oh, yeah. is also based on an Alan Moore thing. And... Uh, movie so bad, Sean Connery left the business after making it. <laughs> I thought it was after Finding Forrester. No. No, oh. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And it was, yeah, famously so bad he never didn't. I mean, I don't know if that was, he said he said as much, but yeah, it was his last movie. <laughs> now on to a segment we like to call Director Wolfgang Peterson. <laughs> yes, Director Wolfgang Peterson uh, defends his film adaptation of Michael Ende's book. Peterson claims that the script was, quote, very faithful to the book and that Michael Ende was a control freak who let fame go to his head. Uh, Peterson said that he was treated like Jesus Christ in Germany, which is mm. quite a thing to say about an author. Um, mm -hmm. He also said that the author didn't understand movie adaptations and, you know, 
Movies aren't books. The story was sacred to him, Peterson said, and you cannot change that. So while I was trying to work with him on the script, it was difficult to make any changes. If I needed to cut something out, he wouldn't understand that. There were a lot of things that at the time we just could not yet do technically. Maybe today it would be different. The bottom line is, he could not really understand the process of making a two-hour movie from his big and very, very rich book. He didn't understand it and didn't want to understand it. Which is all fair points. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate yeah. that the author doesn't like the really beloved adaptation of his book, but... But he likes the checks. Um, Do you think he got points on it? Was that part of the deal back then? I almost... I gotta wonder if, if you sue the studio that's making your movie, I almost <laughs> yeah, wonder you if probably... you inherently surrender some kind of... Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's but, fair. Let's talk about director Wolfgang Peterson for a moment. He's making his second appearance on TMI. Uh, he would later go on to direct my beloved large plane movie, Air Force One, in addition to Outbreak, Troy with Brad Pitt, and the 2006 remake of The Poseidon Adventure. So this is really, as far as I know, his only real foray into the children's film realm. Uh, but in the early 80s, he was essentially Germany's answer to Steven Spielberg. Remember this comparison, because we'll come back to it. He'd just broken through with 1981's Das Boot, the World War II drama set aboard a German U-boat, which earned him an Oscar nomination. And he'd spent three years painstakingly recreating this German submarine and immersing himself in this dark and gritty story. So he was ready for something a little different. Although I would argue that he brought the same dark and gritty sensibility to this children's movie. He later told Entertainment Weekly for their truly incredible never-ending story oral history from 2019, Das Boot was a tough, tough movie to make. From the story point of view, it was very dark and emotional material. My son at the time was around 10 years old, so he didn't really care for Das Boot very much. As a father, I wanted to do something that my son would really be interested in and that he could be proud of. And that's when he got a call from another German director, a guy named Helmut Diedel. And this guy, Helmut, was the original director of The NeverEnding Story, but he was known for small-scale dramas and comedies. And once they started the ball rolling on the complex practical effects and puppets and miniatures for this movie, he found himself completely overwhelmed and basically resigned. He called Wolfgang Peterson and more or less begged him to take it over, uh, since technical tour de force epics were sort of Peterson's whole deal after making the submarine movie. So Wolfgang hopped into the director's chair and proceeded to make a living hell for his <laughs> actors. I'm only sort of kidding. I compared him to Spielberg a moment ago, but a more apt comparison might have been Stanley Kubrick, um, <laughs> a director who was famous for pushing his actors to the brink of sanity by demanding take after take after take. Your average director would ask for five, maybe ten takes of a given scene. Peterson was famous for going for 40 takes on basically every scene in this movie. Wasn't Shelley Duvall going down the staircase like 130? In The Shining? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, wasn't she reduced to tears? I'm sure everybody on The Shining was reduced to tears. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know if Peterson reduced people on the set of The NeverEnding Story to tears, but there were some injuries. We'll get to that later. So he asked for dozens and dozens of takes of basically every scene. And partially this might have been a result of Peterson's very limited English at that time and the resulting language barriers. But he was also kind of a perfectionist. 
And these long, arduous days caused the budget of the film to inflate considerably to $27 million, or $76 million in today's dollars, making it the most expensive film to be made outside of the United States or the Soviet Union at that time. And amusingly, the previous record was also held by Peterson for Das Boot, so he broke his own record. Actor Noah Hathaway, who played Atreyu the Warrior Child, gave an interview in the News Tribune in 2015 in which he claimed that the shoot was originally slated for three months. And instead, because of all these retakes, it stretched to a full year. The shoot quadrupled in length. And Hathaway says that two of the scenes in the movie, Artak's death in the Swamp of Sadness and the introduction of the giant turtle Morla, took two months to shoot. That's a long time to watch a horse drown. And I know from yeah. horse drownings. All right. <laughs> Stares out the window with your scotch. Oh, oh, man. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. 
Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This brings us to Atreyu, or more appropriately, the young man who played him, Noah Hathaway. He earned a reputation as a bit of a diva on the set, um, or at least by one account. Special effects director Brian Johnson gave an interview to Sci-Fi Now where he described Noah Hathaway as, quote, a bit of a pain in the arse, frankly. It was very difficult for Wolfgang to get anything out of him. But perhaps he's being a little harsh considering the kid nearly died several times on the set. The whole process of making this movie was a nightmare for this poor Noah Hathaway kid. He was one of apparently 50,000 hopefuls who tried out for the role of Atreyu, and he wound up auditioning at least 10 times. That is insane. Yeah, that's Well, I guess because he was originally cast by the original director, and then once the director left and Wolfgang Peterson stepped in, he had to start the process all over again. So that was part of the problem. But Noah Hathaway eventually got the gig, later citing his half-Native American heritage as a crucial factor in giving him a certain look that producers were looking for to play the warrior child. The name Atreyu, by the way, has several different origin stories. In the never-ending story novel, it's revealed that Atreyu means son of all because he was an orphan and raised by all the members of his village. But it's also possible that Atreyu was derived from the ancient Greek Atreus, meaning fearless, or an ancient Sanskrit word for great warrior. It's all, all ancient them. Sanskrit, right? All these all these <laughs> all these fantasy terms are stolen from Sanskrit. Yeah. Very fitting for this child warrior. Initially, Noah Hathaway, prior to getting cast in the Neverending Story, was supposed to appear in a Broadway production of Chaplin, starring Gene Kelly and Anne Margaret. Mm. But he opted to Neverending Story instead. <laughs> it's a mistake, kid. Spending a year in a buckskin onesie instead of tapping toes with Gene Kelly? You'll never work in this town again. I mean, to be real, though, I mean, yes. I don't know. No, I it turned out well Trump's for Broadway. him. It turned yeah. out well for him. But in the original novel, Atreyu is a member of the Greenskin race, which, as the name suggests, means that he is green. And the makeup team for the film adaptation tried to keep this character trait and actually painted Noah Hathaway in green paint for some early scenes. However, the effect did not look good on camera, and this whole idea was abandoned. Hathaway said, quote, it wasn't believable. I look like fungi. He also cut the scene where he does uh, It Ain't Easy Being Green with Kermit. It just felt forced. (laughs) Uh, But I guess they thought he was a little too pale, so they stuck him in a tanning booth for a couple weeks to make it more believable that this kid, like, you know, (laughs) lived by his wits in the forest. But there is one element of pre-production that is way less relaxing than kicking back at a salon. (laughs) While learning to ride a horse, Noah Hathaway was apparently thrown off and then kicked by the animal. And some sources say the horse actually fell on him. And as a result, this poor kid spent a month in traction. And producers seriously wondered if he would be healed in time to play a treyu. Uh, to this day, he has titanium screws in his spine and apparently continues to deal with painful back issues. I wonder if there is a settlement. Just saying. Uh, thankfully, I guess, for Noah, <laughs> um, a bunch of other issues slowed down the production, namely trying to figure out ways to make it look like you're drowning a horse on screen without actually drowning a horse, <laughs> which meant that he was able to recuperate in time to participate in filming, only to be seriously injured again. <laughs> 
There's a scene when he fights the wolf-like beast Gamork, which was actually a robotic puppet. This robot malfunctioned during the scene, and I guess it went haywire, and one of its claws slashed the young actor's <laughs> face right beside his eye and nearly blinded him. It's alive! It's self-aware! <laughs> Seriously! Run! And then, this, and then this robotic puppet fell on him, and it was so heavy when it landed on him that he, it knocked the wind out of him and injured him pretty badly. Um, they only got one shot with this robotic puppet doing this because he was so badly injured. That's the shot that you see in the final movie because that was the only one they could get. <laughs> I just like to imagine, going back to Kubrick, that he's like acting alongside this wolf and all of a sudden it starts talking in the howl voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I can't do that, Atreyu. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't allow you to do that. Uh, uh, while we're on the topic of injuries, I just want to shout out two of my favorite SFX injuries of all time. <laughs> Which is surely a subcategory. It's a list of I like to keep handy. Um, <laughs> Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked yeah. Witch in Wizard of Oz during her cloud of smoke disappearing, her like ninja vanish scene, ended up with third degree burns on her hands and second degree burns on her face after that. Yeah. And you said that's the take they used. Yeah, that's the take they used. Because the, I think the um, I think that the makeup that she was in, the green, you know, flammable makeup or whatever. <laughs> well, it was made of copper, which I think think i th i should probably check this but what i think was it's, it's wrong flammable. with them because they also well, I mean, buddy epson they painted him in like silver and he wasn't a on a respirator or in an oxygen tent right yes the original tin man buddy epson who later became very famous as jed clampett on the beverly hillbillies uh they painted him silver with basically like silver dust and he i think the line that he said was he went to breathe and nothing happened <laughs> he breathed in the dust and it just coated his lungs and um and yeah nearly killed him i don't know he had to quit the movie yeah um and they got ray bolger I think Ray Bolger or I think it was Ray Bolger and and they obviously changed the makeup compound quite a bit. I wonder how pissed he was that they didn't wait for him. Like not only am I in the hospital, but I lost this huge role. They didn't wait um, for Judy Garland to sleep. You think they're going to wait for him? <laughs> <laughs> You're no Judy kid. <laughs> Buddy, get back in the tent. <laughs> uh, my favorite one from Jurassic is from Jurassic Park because it is just such a. It's, I don't know this one. Oh yeah, so um, Stan Winston uh, was the effects studio that did the animatronics for that movie. Just some of the all-time animatronics work, and a guy named Alan Scott was uh, burning the midnight oil at Warner Brothers Studio, uh, gluing foam rubber to the uh, the skin to the T-Rex. I actually spent a, like a, a while trying to find pictures of that thing without its skin on. I wasn't able to find any because imagine how horrifying that would look. Like a Terminator T-Rex that's like 20 <laughs> feet tall. Face. Yeah. And uh, so he's inside the thing's mouth gluing its roof of its mouth onto the mechanical armature and because its jaws defaulted to closed when the power was off they had to do this while it was basically plugged in and control it to put the jaws open as wide as possible so he could be in there and he said to the guy he gave this interview about it he said to the guy who was there was like put that switch on and make sure no one can trip over it or accidentally hit it because if it closes on me that will be bad. And then someone just shut the whole studio power off. So the thing starts to go. Because these are like industrial hydraulics these things are built out of. 
just starts closing on him while he's in there. He talks about curling into a smaller and smaller ball so his limbs or head didn't get caught in that thing. And it it lowers, so the jaws close and the head lowers down. And I guess a bunch of the other crew guys had to come and pry him out of it. Can you imagine that? He's probably the, the, the last human to be almost eaten by a T-Rex, really, when you think <laughs> exactly. about it. Wow. I showed you there. I was on the set for Jurassic Park 2. I think I showed you pictures of this. They had off to the side, a, a, maybe it was the same T-Rex head for all I know, this dinosaur head pried open, and they just used it for craft services in this T-Rex's mouth. They just had all these styrofoam coffee cups lined up, just held in place by all the teeth. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, man. God love you. Uh, it's, a, it's a rough industry. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. So this poor kid, he was like 10. This poor Noah Hathaway. Uh, given all of his physical anguish, at least he has the satisfaction of seeing his once in a lifetime performance up on the big screen, right? Wrong! <laughs> During a panel at Dragon Con in 2010, Noah Hathaway claimed that virtually none of his lines in the film are his own voice, despite <sighs> the fact that he did record the lines himself. He claims that another actor was brought in to dub over his lines, and that was what we hear in the finished film. The voice actor used for this was apparently uncredited. I was unable to find any information on this person. Uh, you can hear Noah's actual voice in a making of special that was released in 1983 that you can find on YouTube. You can tell that they are slightly different. But I guess dubbing was pretty common in this movie because much of the filming took place in Germany. Many of the actors were German and they spoke their lines in their native language only to have them dubbed into English in post. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is super common. Um, I didn't know about it in Germany, but I remember the famous thing about all the um, spaghetti westerns is that all the different actors were just speaking in their native language. Uh, so you got guys talking English, Spanish, Italian. So some there's scenes where some people have no idea what the other one is saying. <laughs> <laughs> then they just dub it, dub it over in post. And I think they did that up into the 70s with some of the... Uh, Dario Argento horror stuff because those were like like David Hemmings is in one of those Deep Red so it's like they had English speaking actors on them but they were shot in Italy and I think the Italian actors were just speaking in Italian that whole time such a fun way to make movies Dario Argento is that Agio's father? wow yep yep Uh, the actor who played the Night Hob Tilo Pruckner spoke most of his dialogue in German and had it dubbed over. And the same is true for the rock biter. If you go back and watch the movie, you can see that their mouths are moving and saying something completely different to what's actually so coming much out of them. creepier in German. Like, can you imagine the original, yeah. <laughs> the original dubs of that? Ugh. I watched um, a German dub, well, not the whole thing, of the Wicked Witch of the West doing the, I'll get you my pretty. Uh, <laughs> And it's really scary. It's really, really <laughs> scary. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's like yeah, fascist like, speeches or something. <laughs> interesting point. The voice of the Rockbiter, Falcor the Luck Dragon, and Gamork were all dubbed by the same American voiceover actor, Alan Hoppenheimer, who's a veteran of the Smurfs, He-Man, and Transformers. I know you love your voiceover actor. I sure do. But this all brings us to... The horse scene, man. We've been delaying the inevitable. It's time to discuss (laughs) it. Good God. The moment when Atreyu's beloved horse sinks in the swamp of eternal sadness. And now we're about to sink in the swamp of eternal (laughs) sadness, too. Well, let's get this out of the way. The horse didn't die. That was like a persistent urban legend that I remember hearing growing up, you know, 
pre-Snopes, pre-internet days, it was just always like, oh, you know, they, they actually killed a horse on that movie. But no, folks, this was not Michael Simono's Days of Heaven, <laughs> where they actually blew up a horse. Nor was it the Italian horror film Cannibal Holocaust, in which they kill a turtle. They did, however, almost drown the horse in a big sea of mud. Um, th- that's an unkind reading of the situation. <laughs> an ungenerous... <laughs> Um, so, but yes, there is a horse, there is mud, it is up to its neck, yes. But but go on. Yeah, actually, I guess it's not really that f- up, because they make horses swim in westerns all the time, right? They're like, usually, yeah. they're always like riding horses into the water to get to the outlaws and such. Anyway, horses are not known for their love of chest-deep mud, and so two trainers spent seven weeks teaching one of the two horses playing Artax to stand still on a hydraulic platform in the swamp with mud up to his chin without trying to swim or run away. Nearly two months teaching a horse to defy all of its natural instincts of self-preservation. A scene they initially only budgeted two weeks of shooting for. Uh, Can you imagine being the other horse and just watching from the sides and being like, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not Jimmy today. Um, Noah Hathaway didn't have it much better. According to some sources, his leg got caught on that hydraulic elevator and he was dragged underwater during one of these shoots. And by the time he pulled it up, he had lost consciousness. Just super bad for you. Um, you don't want that. You want to be conscious. Um, but, uh, that you didn't, weren't able to verify that, but no horses were harmed other than psychologically and emotionally. And Noah told this to Entertainment Weekly uh, for their oral history on the film. He said, the real horse never really died. They were more careful with that horse than they were with me. I got hurt a hell of a lot more. The horse was definitely looked after well. <laughs> Which is adorable. We like is it? cared for. Yeah, I guess it's not. I just like the horse being like the horse being happy. <laughs> They're like leading the horse off like. Oh, great day of shooting. Great day of shooting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Oh, baby, you were great. You were wonderful. You were were better than beautiful. (laughs) No, get back in your fucking cage. (laughs) (laughs) You come too, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to my trailer. Call me when he wakes up. (laughs) Pump Um, his stomach. (laughs) (laughs) The horse did actually uh, live happily ever after. Noah Hathaway said he was given the horse at the end of filming, along with the saddle that he uh, used in the film for it. But... Due to the cost of transportation, quarantine, and sterilization, they mean germs, right? They didn't have to sterilize the horse. I would ass- I, I would assume so, yeah. Okay. Anyway, it cost too much, and the horse was left behind in Germany, where it lived happily for another 20 years. You can't just give somebody a horse. That's not something that you can, <laughs> like, like, that's a gift that registers as hostile. At that, with all the stuff, all the money, all the, the yeah. prep, all the housing for mm-hmm. it, like that that's no longer a gift. That's a responsibility. That's yes, like, here's an obligation. Yeah. I mean, maybe he bonded uh, with it. Maybe, I mean, he, the kid looks like a natural on all these horses. Considering he had to learn how to ride for this movie, like that's pretty insane. He looks amazing. Uh, and he says that he loves doing all these conventions for the never-ending story because he feels responsible for traumatizing generations of kids with that scene. Yep, sure did. Uh, <laughs> he says he hopes it's therapeutic for them to see him in real life. Uh, Noah has acted sporadically, but he is now a martial arts teacher and tattoo artist in Las Vegas. Um, one thing you can't get from him is a tattoo of 
the Aran talisman. Am I saying that right, Jordan? Mm-hmm, I think so. It's on the cover of the NeverEnding Story book. It's the necklace that Atreyu wears in the movie. It's kind of the um, the cool magic prop from the movie. And so once people found out that he was that the kid who played Atreyu was doing tattoos, he got flooded with requests to do <laughs> tattoos of that, which he says is flattering. But no, he will not do that anymore. Anyway, moving on. Jordan, talk to us about the childlike empress. Yes, she's actually known as the childlike empress. I'm not editorializing <laughs> there. I first started coming across that in articles and thought, oh, that's weird. But no, that's actually like her full title uh my favorite fact about this horse drowning scene is that was apparently the first day on the set for the little girl who played the childlike empress whoa yes i know i can't i'm making it i'm I'm making it in the movies my first big role it's probably worth adding right here that it was her last big role oh man mommy why is that horse crying yes uh yeah wolfgang peterson said that while they were shooting this scene there was basically not a dry eye on the set. So, um, so wow. Welcome to show business. <laughs> she was cast late in the production and Wolfgang Peterson had invited her down to check things out on the set and surprise. Um, Tammy Stronach is the name of the actress who played the Empress. And she had been attending theater classes in San Francisco, playing the part of Piglet in an adaptation of Winnie the Pooh, which I love when she was asked to audition for this role. I guess her acting teacher was friends with the production executive and the talent scout for this movie uh tammy initially believed that she was auditioning for a little play and she had no idea that it was for a major motion picture and she auditioned alongside heather o'rourke the little girl from poltergeist which i think Mm. is adorable can totally see her doing a good job as the empress also but tammy won out and she was cast i guess two weeks before filming began And if her first day on the set was any indication, she was really thrown into the deep end here. Her scene at the end of the movie, when the evil force known as the Nothing is threatening to destroy the land of Fantasia, she is just absolutely tremendous. She's like, you know, close up shot at the camera, you know, Bastion, save us like this absolutely harrowing scene. She's so good. Uh, She later described Wolfgang Peterson getting down on his haunches so he could talk to her at eye level to give her acting notes. And he was just saying, hey, remember, it's the end of the world. Nothing (laughs) will be left. Look at me. I need you to understand. Look at me. Look at me in the eyes, Tommy. Nothing it'll be left it's a heavy thing to lay on a kid she was like 11 <laughs> good god uh, but she Tell pulled me. off this incredibly complex scene despite her age and um also another hindrance dentures the <laughs> second appearance of child dentures on tmi the the olsen twin babies were forced to wear baby dentures on the set of full house and now poor tammy when she was playing the childlike empress she'd lost two of her upper front teeth shortly before filming began so she had to wear dentures to cover up the gaps and unfortunately the false teeth impacted her ability to speak and caused her to speak with a prominent lisp which required a great deal of time and diction to overcome so not only is she doing this incredibly emotionally complex scene she's trying to overcome these weird fake teeth in her mouth so good lord very talented uh there's an incredible interview that she gave to the beacon reader in 2014 where she shares the notebook that she kept during the never-ending story shoot uh and her character notes are as follows and you can there's a picture of this notebook it's in her childlike handwriting her notes for the empress are as follows dignity in charge wise understanding magical 
very sick, very tired, very old, parentheses, 300 years, very empress, very otherworldly, very goddess-like. It was my uh, Tinder bio back in the day. <laughs> it was like that, uh, that um, Rickles thing. Well, it's late and I'm full and I'm sick of all you people. <laughs> very sick and, sick and tired. <laughs> Jordan, tell us more about Tammy. Yes, the Empress, who is not so childlike anymore, is a remarkable lady. She was born in Iran, where her father was an archaeologist, and I think her mom was an anthropologist, and her family fled the country during the revolution in 79. And The Neverending Story was her only feature film role for many years, due in large part to the disturbing reaction from her so-called fans. The family home was stalked. I guess people were camping out on her lawn, literally. She was inundated with calls on her home phone and adults proposed to her with engagement rings. She was 11, <sighs> may I remind you. And the scripts that she relieved from Hollywood featured nude scenes. <sighs> so I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. <laughs> so perhaps wisely, her parents declined to allow her to appear in the never ending story sequel, basically in an effort to avoid the further trappings of child stardom. For years, she pursued a career in dance, working as a dance company director in Brooklyn. And it was recently announced that she's appearing in a movie with Sean Astin, star of another beloved 80s property, The Goonies, and friend of the program, Christopher Lloyd. This is a movie called Man and Witch, which looks tremendous. It has some of my favorite British comedians. Jennifer Saunders of Absolutely Fabulous, Eddie Izzard, and Bill Bailey from Nevermind the Buzzcocks. It looks really cool. I can't wait to see Rhea it. Rhea Perlman. Yeah. Uh, Rhea Perlman's in it, too? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so that's cool. So I guess it's going to be her first feature film role since The NeverEnding Story oh, almost and 40 Jim, years ago. And Jim Henson's Creature Shop is doing the puppets. Oh, it's going to be awesome. They have no plans to use CGI. This movie cool. sounds awesome. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm really excited for it. I think it was announced in like 2020. I think they're, I, I think yeah. they're, it, it, it looks says like, delayed. They were hoping to have it out last year. This is uh, according to EW in 2020. But there's one mystery about the never ending story that has baffled fans for decades. And that is the name of the Empress. You'll remember that in the climactic scene of the movie, Bastion, the boy who's been reading the never-ending story book, learns that he must give the childlike empress a new name and call it out to her in order to save the world of Fantasia by being devoured by the nothing. And there's the very gripping scene when Bastion dramatically runs to the window and shouts into the storm uh, in incomprehensible sound. <laughs> I, I have no idea Bobcat what he's Goldthwait, saying. Bobcat Goldthwait, dub that in. Yeah, I, <laughs> there's a great... <laughs> So there's been a great deal of debate over the name Bastion gave the childlike empress, but the original novel reveals the name to be Moonchild. And if you revisit the scene and know how to read lips, it does seem to fit what he's shouting. So Moonchild is the name that Bastion gave the empress. As to why it was obscured in the first place, no idea. Adding mystique is my best guess. Mm. So there you go. Well, that brings us to Bastion. You don't no, like Bastion. Not my favorite character, no. no. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of a wimp, so maybe I just identified with him too much as a kid. <laughs> I don't know. Spent a lot of time in dumpsters, you did? No. <laughs> Jordan has been literally sucking on a lemon throughout <laughs> this part podcast. Is and yet a, I'm still you, sweeter than you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bastion, Jordan's enemy. 
played by a kid named Barrett Oliver, who uh, you said beat out some 200 kids, which contrasts this with the alleged 50,000 that Noah Hathaway uh, was up against, which that is a lopsided ratio. Yeah, either, so either Noah Hathaway's had- lying or not many kids wanted to play. I mean, granted, Bastion's entire role consists of getting thrown into a dumpster and then hiding in an attic, so maybe it just wasn't that interesting of a role, as opposed to Atreyu who's riding horses and fighting a giant wolves. giant dragon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> hindsight, though, Oliver didn't spend a month in traction. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> or yes, watch yes. a horse drown for two months. Interestingly, just before flying to Germany to film The NeverEnding Story, uh, the kid was cast as the star of Frankenweenie, which is a 29-minute live-action short directed by a young Tim Burton, which was shelved for years after Disney fired him amid accusations that he was wasting company resources on this featurette that wasn't suitable for kids. (laughs) Welcome to Tim Uh, Burton, everybody. Yeah, once... uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, all those blew up. Frank and Weenie came out in 1992. And then they remade it in, I think, 2012. Yes. Yes, they... And guess who's in Frank and Weenie, Jordan? I don't know. Shelley Duvall. That's right. Oh, my God. Anyway, Oliver does not do the convention circuit, unlike Atreyu and the Empress. Uh, He now works as a specialist in historic photographic print technology. Uh, known as Woodbury-type proto-copy machines from the mid-1800s. He's worked with the Getty Conservation Institute and even published a book on this from 2007. And you can catch him in a short 2012 documentary entitled In the Usual Manner for the Huntington Library's Civil War Photography Exhibit. So I didn't have that on my bingo of this movie. Uh, but good for him, man. I love We love a nerd. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. 
We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special effects, the SFX in the movie were handled by a guy named Brian Johnson, who you remember from shitting on Noah Hathaway earlier. <laughs> and, his effects had almost killed him like three times. <laughs> so yeah, I maybe, know, right? Maybe Noah Hathaway wasn't in any mood to be nice to him. Yes, like, hey, your robot almost cut my eye out. That's true. Uh, he received the 1980 Academy Award for Best Visual Effects for Alien, uh, which he shared with designer H.R. Giger and a few other guys. And he had, uh, man, everybody's just coming back to Kubrick from this episode. He had previously built the miniatures for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wow. Um, and George Lucas offered him the role of effects supervisor for the initial Star Wars. And he was unable to accept it, but he did work on Empire Strikes Back. And uh, he picked up another Academy Award, a special achievement award for that, which he shared with the other guys from that film. Interestingly enough, he was also originally in talks to do a film for Italian filmmaker Raffaella De Laurentiis of the famous De Laurentiis family, uh, which we gather from around the timeline to be one of the Conan the Barbarian movies. I think so, I, yeah. Yeah. But that deal fell apart, uh, and he picked Neverending Story instead. Not just the sheer number of miniatures and practicals that he had to do in this film. The weather also conspired against him. This was one of the hottest summers Germany had in 25 years. And it was so hot that one of the statues of the ivory tower actually melted. Uh, where on the other days, the crew were forced to shut down production because the blue backgrounds for the matte work wouldn't work properly. Is that because they were melting or because of like heat waves on the set? I, th- I, I don't know. I'm thinking like heat waves, like, you know, when you look at a road on a hot day and everything looks yeah. kind of like, yeah, I think it's that. Johnson said that he built what he believes to be the largest blue screen ever made at the time. 95 by 35 feet. Good Lord. Wow. Uh, Johnson was part of the team who created The Nothing, and yes. fans of the movie will recall that The Nothing is an emptiness or despair fueled by the loss of hopes and dreams. And New Yorkers will know it better as Midtown. <laughs> hey doing the Doing the Johnny Carson, like, golf swing. Yeah, yeah, oh. exactly. Nothing for nothing yeah. leaves nothing. You gotta have something. And I'm not fronting. Believe you me. <laughs> Doesn't he say I'm not stuffing at one point in that I song? I think so. For those of you keeping track at home, that is our first Billy Preston reference of this oh, episode. Oh, 
Oh, oh the series. Oh, man. But God back to Billy. the nothing, because Billy Preston <laughs> sure isn't nothing. In the novel, it's described as an invisible force. So the special effects coordinators had to figure out how to basically make this visual. And they landed on the rolling storm clouds as a way to indicate the nothing's presence. And I'd always assumed that those terrifying clouds, which I honestly, I still think of, you know, whenever I see a storm out in the distance, I just thought it was old footage of approaching storm clouds that had been sped up and colorized. But apparently it's colored oil in water, which is pretty ingenious. Yeah, I started, I tried to look at what other things that's been done in. I don't think the 2001, like that whole trippy thing at the end was that, but I think, do you remember that Darren Aronofsky movie, The Fountain? Like sort of Starting a little bit. Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think the trippy space scenes in that were like similar oil and really? water. Like it's a, it's also like a big um, live music psychedelic yeah, era. The effect. Joshua Light show from the old Fillmores and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Monterey Pop in the background has all the like pulsating blob stuff. It's pretty cool. It um, is. I mean, it's such a neat little trick. Yeah. Uh, but the destruction caused by the nothing is pretty epic everything from trees and rocks to people just get sucked into the horizon line i it's like really rewatching yeah, those scenes horrifying. were pretty horrifying yeah and there's a scene where atreyu is literally blown sideways and he's hanging onto a tree he's like a human flag i just assume that they got some industrial strength jet turbine to blow <laughs> the kid just in keeping in line with complete disregard for this kid's life but their method for achieving this effect was actually a lot more ingenious they built a room on gimbals which allowed the room to rotate and tip over and in this room they built the set where Atreyu was going to get blown around by the nothing they had all these rocks and dirt and trees and when they shot the scene they just tipped the room over so gravity would cause everything to just fly in one direction but because they had the camera mounted in the room as well the perspective stayed the same so it just looked like this crazy wind was blowing everything away and noah hathaway was just hanging from this tree <laughs> parallel to the ground really Hang on, cool kid. yeah I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's a making of documentary on youtube um there's the original one from 83 and then they made one for like a dvd special features that's also on youtube and you can see this being done it's like really cool very ingenious again it's like the it's like the oil and water thing it's like very effective nowhere near as difficult as i would have assumed oh it's easy for me to say i'm not i don't have the arm power to hang from a tree as much <laughs> as this kid did the one that i always remember from that that he's the same trick is uh nightmare on elm street when um johnny depp's character gets killed he's like strapped up into the ceiling uh, and they did it the same way and i didn't bring this up earlier but speaking as of sfx injuries they're very bloody scene like insane fountains of blood which was obviously just red colored water and uh, the cinematographer Jacques Heitken explained that when they begin to dump water through the hole, uh, there's a hole in the ceiling that the water comes out of. It hit the light and it electrified. And so the guy pouring it through the hole was electrocuted. Oh, Hollywood, where dreams are made. Um, this is like a very avoidable problem. Well, you know, or just got, everybody was deadlines. like, it could happen. Let's hope it doesn't. They got deadlines to meet. Mm -hmm. Electrocute the kid. I don't give a <laughs> shit. <laughs> Have you seen the dailies? <laughs> I'm underwater on this picture. <laughs> oh, man. But in the movie, Atreyu is rescued from the nothing by Falcor the Luck Dragon. We have not talked about Falcor enough. He's one of the crowning achievements of the special effects team in this movie. It was 
basically like designing an aircraft built by chief animatronics engineer Giuseppe Totora, who you have a factoid on. Oh, yeah. He did uh, SFX on Conan the Barbarian, man. Um, What else did he do? Surely other. Oh, he worked on the sequel to this. Oh, he worked in one of my favorite gross, weird horror movies, uh, From Beyond, which is, um, folks, if you like wet puppets and who doesn't, just look up some of the effects for this movie. It is gross and weird and awesome. Sorry. So, so this is on. the guy who's responsible for our beloved for Falcor. Falcor. <laughs> and he's actually two models. The biggest is a 43-foot-long motorized puppet framed out with airplane steel, topped off with 6,000 plastic scales and pink fur. I guess it was pink and white. The three-foot head alone weighed more than 200 pounds, and the body required at least 15 people to manipulate at any given moment via strings. One was in charge of movements of the nose. Two other people were in charge of each eyebrow. Others were on the mouth. It was this incredibly complex puppet. I mean, it makes Muppets look like, you know, simple. And those only have two. I mean, Um, just remember how much of a pain in the ass the shark was from Jaws. And this thing was like literally twice that big. Yeah, yeah. Um, They were syncing it to a tape of pre-recorded dialogue. So they had to make sure that the mouth matched the words, the body language and facial expression matched the emotion. All these people. I mean, it was a big, just choreographed operation. Incredibly difficult. Sounds like an absolute nightmare. But the Rockbiter puppet was even more complicated. That took 25 people to operate. Uh, just absolutely incredible. And director Wolfgang Peterson really believes that these practical effects played a huge role in the movie's staying power. He said, quote, the creatures were so real how they interacted with the actors. It wasn't just like they were standing in front of this green screen and pretending, which is true, which is something that just 10 years later, even would not go through all the trouble of having these kinds of effects built. Really amazing. Uh, given the complexity of the puppet, Falcor was not a beloved figure on the set, despite the fact that he's a beloved figure in my heart. Brian Johnson, the aforementioned special effects coordinator, said in an interview with Sci-Fi Now that Falcor, quote, worked fine, but it didn't really <laughs> do it for me. It was huge and it was difficult moving him around and we couldn't make him walk. That's true, I guess, with all the uh, motorized parts of it walking and wasn't really part of it. They what just suspended. Right, no, it's a 40-foot dragon. <laughs> uh, Noah Hathaway, who Lord knows went through more than his fair share of abuse on this film set, said that riding Falcor, quote, wasn't as glamorous as you might imagine. Sometimes it would overheat, Jesus, and it would start going <laughs> out of control probably once every 20 minutes. It ended up being like a bucking bronco. I just had to hold on for dear life from time to time, but it was fun. <laughs> considering the thing was suspended from 20 feet up in the air, it sounds like less than fun. What is it with these robots going haywire every 20 minutes? I'm saying, I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, one person who really hated Falcor was unsurprisingly never ending story author, Michael Ende. One of the many things that he disliked about the finished film was Falcor because he resembled a big golden retriever instead of the dragon that he'd originally written. And I guess this was directorial choice by Wolfgang Peterson. He wanted to make him resemble a dog because he felt that kids would respond more to dogs than dragons, which, you know, was arguably correct. He's he's without question the most beloved character in this movie. Yeah. And you know what? If you ever find yourself in Munich, you can meet Falcor 
and take him for a ride. I love this so much. The original Falcor puppet is on display at the Bavaria Film Studios, where visitors are invited to sit on his back for a photo op. And this is great. They even have a fan just off hmm. camera in front of him to get the full windblown effect for your pictures. It's so good. It looks like he's flying. Um, there's other things there from the NeverEnding Store. There's the aforementioned oracles. There's mm-hmm. the Rockbiter puppet and the racing snail. They're also there. And there are other full sets from the NeverEnding Store that you can walk through as well. And guess what? It gets better. <laughs> there are sets from Wolfgang Peterson's large plane movie. Yes, Air Force <laughs> One sets are there too. Stay tuned for when we tape an episode of this from the Bavaria Studios. <laughs> from a I top think so cool. Oh, I would love to go. <laughs> This is so funny to me. Uh, So deeply appropriate. Um, The never-ending story script did not have an end. Uh, Peterson and the production team, because as we mentioned earlier, the shooting script is only the first half of the book. So Peterson, the production team, had to come up with how this movie was slated to end. And it was uh, thus decided to have the scene where Bastion returns to the real world via Falcor and chases after the three bullies, chases them into a dumpster. Um... Mimicking the opening of the movie when he is, I believe, thrown into a dumpster. Yeah, we call that a framing device. Um, <laughs> it would have ruled if they Only just like... Only one of us went to film school. <laughs> it would have ruled if they just like... It was like one of the extremely gory like uh, Game of Thrones like dragon scenes. Like These kids just get butchered by an enormous dragon. I want him to know it was me. <laughs> Um, if yes, which uh, author Michael Endy was not a fan of. Too bad. Yeah, too, it sucks to be him. It doesn't. Sleeping on large piles of money. Um, For $50,000, though. Eh. Yeah, he didn't get much from this movie, but come on, dude. 30 billion or whatever movie. Like, it was basically Harry Potter. Proto Harry Potter, right? I just think it's so funny that Noah Hathaway was later in a movie called Troll, where he plays a character whose name is Harry Potter. What? When? Was this pre-Harry Potter the book? Yeah, yeah. No I found this on. It was creeping on his uh, his IMDb. It's weird. Uh, <laughs> speaking of nothing in particular. Oh, Steven Spielberg. We brought up. Uh, speaking of Jaws, there it is. There's the connection. Uh, giant malfunctioning puppets. Steven Spielberg and Wolfgang Peterson have a cozy relationship. They apparently met when Spielberg was filming Indiana Jones, the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he borrowed the sub replica from Das Boot. For the scene where uh, the subsurfaces and Indy's still hanging onto it, right? I think he so. He doesn't yeah. like go under. He doesn't like, go underwater with it. No. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's when they met, and um, they were also both up for Oscars at the uh, 1983 Academy Awards. Spielberg was there for ET. Peterson for Das Boot. Um, you know what? I think this friendship is really pure. Yeah. Uh, Peterson told MTV News that they spoke quite a bit on the phone during this period. And Spielberg uh, apparently asked him for input uh, on filming locations for what would become Schindler's List. Uh, as he was gearing up to release the first English release of Never Ending Story, Peterson asked Spielberg to take a look and give him some notes. Uh, he said, I told him that I'd like to show it to him because I had a feeling that for an American audience, it was a bit slow. It has a very European feel to it, and I thought that he could give me some advice about edits I could make to it. He gave me some very good suggestions about where I could make a few little cuts here and there to get the pacing up a little bit to where it would suit American audiences better. Which is, yeah, man. All Europeans just think Americans are like TV-addled idiots and can't have <laughs> how our can attention. You, how can you make this dumber? Steven, 
<laughs> Steven, I need the movie louder and dumber. Um, <laughs> Can we endanger the kid more? <laughs> <laughs> Steven, I need you to send me another horse to drown. Uh, Wolfgang, we sent you five already. <laughs> Wolfgang, you blew through the horse budget in two weeks. <laughs> what are you doing with them over there? Will I open a glue factory? <laughs> oh boy, this is gonna be a fun one for you to edit. Um, Spielberg cut seven minutes from this, so not really that much else, but many, many minor cuts. Some just a few seconds in length, and just kind of shuffled the order of a few scenes. Uh, and uh, he credited his editing technique to George Lucas. Two were famously buddies. He thought George Lucas was a master of pacing and gifted at making his films snappy, which anyone who has seen those Star Wars prequels huh. might beg to differ, but yeah, I guess... This is before all that. Yeah, it's true. Among the changes Spielberg made was to increase the rumbling sound of the rock biter as he approached the night hob in the beginning of the film. All of that sounds like word salad to me. <laughs> uh, well, why did he do that, though? I don't know. This doesn't oh, I'll, make, okay, I'll tell you yeah, what. Go ahead. Because the, in the original <laughs> version, the, the Night Hob swears, hmm. and uh, Spielberg wanted to obscure the swearing with this rumbling so that uh, the obscenities wouldn't be there, so it would make it more, you know, more of a kid-friendly film. Yeah. The drowning horse stays in the picture, but can't have any profanity. To thank Spielberg for his work on this, Peterson gave him the actual Aaron Talisman prop, which still hangs in a glass display case in Spielberg's office. I've heard that Spielberg's office, he has this like table where he has all of his awards, but I mean like all of his awards, like his Oscar will be next to his Pinewood Derby trophy from his scout days as a kid. Like I just find that all adorable. Like, yeah. like a little kid, like this is my table of my special things. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Oh, well, now we come to our famous... You got to start punching this soundbite in, man. Yeah, I might. I, yeah. It, it's, it's been enshrined as a bit. Uh, a little segment that we like to always throw to Jordan called It Belongs in a Museum. Yes. Speaking of our Spielberg-Lucas collaborations and priceless cinema props, we have to go to the It Belongs in a Museum segment. The original book prop for The NeverEnding Story was placed up for auction by an eBay person ebay <laughs> by an ebay seller named spirit robin 57 not once but twice the first auction listed the item for seventy five thousand dollars, but it failed to sell then it was listed again for twenty eight thousand five hundred dollars but still no takers i actually reached out to this person who of course he sells um japanese antiques which i thought was interesting and they have told me i did sell the book and i've never heard from the buyer of the many years that have passed i reached out to him on various occasions including recently when someone inquired about the book i've had a number of inquiries about it over the years at any rate i've sent all interested parties the nft link below. Ah! Uh, there are currently three owners of the 10 that have been minted um so uh, anyone who wants their own special never-ending story, um, memento, uh, can how reach politely out. you struggled to find a euphemism for NFTs. Yeah, uh, reach out to Spirit Robin R O B Y N fifty seven at eBay, um, and then forward it go. to me on Twitter so I can right-click and save it. You did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
perhaps because of this association with Spielberg and by extension George Lucas, Wolfgang Peterson made sure to sneak in an assortment of their famous characters into his final cut. I have to admit, I never noticed this, but in the very first scene inside the ivory tower, there's a wide shot of a crowd gathered. And in these wide shots, partially obscured by shadows, you can see Yoda, Chewbacca, two Ewoks, C-3PO, and E.T., as well as Mickey Mouse and Gumby. Now, they're not visible for tighter shots, probably because they didn't want to be sued into oblivion. I can see wanting to give a little nod to Spielberg and George Lucas for kind of being friendly with them. It seems like putting Mickey and Gumby in there, you're just poking the bear of copyright lawsuits. (laughs) Um, But that's interesting. Uh, Wolfgang Peterson himself has a cameo in the beginning of the movie as one of the people in a street scene that the bullies bump into. That's interesting. Uh, one crucial difference between the American version of The NeverEnding Story and Peterson's European cut is the addition of Giorgio Moroder's electro flourishes on the soundtrack and, of course, his poppy theme tune. That's only in the American version. He needed to, like, zhuzh up the soundtrack for the Americans. Um, the theme song to NeverEnding Story. Great song. For some reason, I always confuse it with the theme song to David the Gnome. <laughs> you remember that? Look around you. I thought you meant there the laugh. many things to see. I thought you meant remember the um, the David Bowie single. Uh, oh, the, the laughing, laughing gnome. gnome. No, different one, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, never-ending story theme. Incredible. The German version doesn't have it. They only have the classical orchestral score by Klaus Dollinger, who also did the Das Boot soundtrack. Um, yeah, I'm guessing that Wolfgang Peterson just wanted to add an extra dose of sparkle for what he hoped would be his American film breakthrough. So he hired Giorgio Moroder, who'd also done scores to American Gigolo, Midnight Express, and probably most famously Scarface. Um, got him to do his coked out proto-techno disco guru thing. Uh, The theme tune is written by Maroder, but with lyrics by Keith Forsey of the German band Amundul 2. They are a pioneering krautrock band known for their winding psychedelic excursions, which are not not punchy lyrics. Let me tell you that much. Um, And the never-ending story theme is sung by the British pop singer Limal. The lead singer of Kajaja Gugu. Anyone? Hmm. Anything there? Yeah. This thing on uh, Gugu. Yeah. Nope. Nothing. Uh, The song reached the top spot on music charts in Sweden and Norway and sold more than 200,000 copies in the UK, but only made it to number 17 on the US Billboard Hot 100. But then it enjoyed another peak in popularity when it was performed on the third season of Stranger Things in 2019. (laughs) Got that Stranger Things bump, just like Kate Bush. The only way any of us will ever get our dues in life is being featured on a streamer. (laughs) And that brings us up to today. You'll notice that we really didn't mention the sequels, The (laughs) NeverEnding Story 2, starring the late Jonathan Brandis as Bastion, or the even lesser-known NeverEnding Story 3 from 1994, starring the kid from Free Willy as Bastion, and a young Jack Black as a school bully. That's very interesting. We don't mention these two movies because they are both bad. Um, (laughs) Any fans who, for some masochistic reason, are holding out for a reboot, I don't know why you would, but if you are, you will have a long wait. Wolfgang Peterson has said that the rights to the never-ending story are tied up in litigation, presumably due to author Michael Ende's lawsuit, and they are unlikely to be untangled anytime soon. And... 
pretty much everyone is fine with that. Wolfgang Peterson has been quoted as saying, I like the films the way it is. Uh, not going to try to do it. <laughs> uh, I like the film the way it is with all its old-fashioned charm. Just leave it alone. Alan Oppenheimer, the voice of Falcor, Gamork, and the Rockbiter agree, saying, I think they need to leave it alone. It doesn't need a remake. And we should really just give the last word to the childlike empress herself, Tammy Stonach. Though she says she'd enjoy a remake on some level, she says the film is, quote, an invitation to grow the space of making and creating. Hopefully, if Hollywood diversifies and there are more women directors and more minorities writing scripts, the message of the film will be the ultimate winner here. So I don't think we need to remake this, but I think we need to keep growing the space for everyone. That is right. Go ahead and do what you dream. That is a lovely sentiment. Yeah, good for her. Very much so, yeah. Well, Heigl, we don't want this to become another never-ending episode, so (laughs) let us wrap this up. Uh, I'll give you that one, you know, just because you you love this movie. Uh, Mm. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.